We um, continue in Romans this morning. We're going to be reading from Romans 2, 17 to 19. Before we do, I just want to mention that I had a number of people asking me for uh, readings on Romans and uh, an outline of where we're going to be. So I have some more of these. They are back behind, um, they're back on the shelf by the tithes and offering box just behind. And I can make more if I need to. I also put this out online. So if you want a digital version, just send me an email and it has a list of the readings on the side. And one of the other reasons I wanted to give this to you is because we're not going to have time on Sunday morning to read all of the passages in Romans. So we're going to be looking and picking and choosing some special places. So if you would like to, even if you are not reading, you know, through the whole book, I would encourage you to maybe look at the text for the week and then um, read the scriptures before and after that so you have a better idea of where that's at. I think it, it'll help as we move through Romans. Because as I've mentioned, Romans is pretty heavy in terms of thought process with the Apostle Paul. He's building and building and building on the things he's saying. So it's helpful to go back and take a look at some of what he has said before we get to the text we're going to be looking at. It's very tempting at times to pull one passage out of Romans and make a bigger deal out of it than it really is. And, well, they're all a big deal. So maybe let me say that differently. It's tempting to take a passage out of Romans and make it say things it doesn't say because we want it to say that. And so it's helpful to hear what Paul is really saying before and after we read it so that it helps us in our understanding of the text. I didn't, by the way, I didn't put the passages we've already read on there. I just put today forward. So I can give those to you as well if you'd like. Let's read together today from Romans 2, verses 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law. And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then that teach others, will you teach yourself? While you preach about stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, Will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul, as I mentioned, is writing to a church in Rome 
Um, all of this that we just read has to do with this ongoing conflict that's happening because many of the Jews were expelled, if not all of them, from Rome by order of the emperor. I've talked about that previously, so I'm not going to go back to that. But as they come back and they return to the church in Rome, they found that the church has you know, continued, of course, but it's continued with Gentile Christians. Gentiles being all of those from the Jewish perspective who are not Jewish. Those are the Gentiles. So everybody else, okay? So you have the Jews and you have everybody else, the Gentiles. So what Paul is talking about here, of course, is this whole issue of circumcision and uncircumcision, which um, was my least favorite topic when I was doing youth ministry and it came up in the text because I had a bunch of kids going, excuse me, excuse me, what is that? And so I say to you this morning, if you don't know, ask your parents at home. But the bottom line is this was a sign of being admitted into the people of God, at least for men. And of course, baptism replaced that for Christians and it opened that up to everybody. And so Paul, though, I mean, he says, it's hard for us to even understand the weight of what Paul is saying. Paul grew up in the Jewish community. It was everything to him. He was a a star student under one of the best rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. He was rising fast, and so when we first meet Paul in, in, the, in the scriptures, Paul is actually after the Christians, approving of the stoning of Stephen, Stephen for being a Christian, talking about Jesus, because he is so sure as a teacher of the law that the Christians are wrong. And so for Paul to say this, to say that one is a Jew who is one inwardly, and that circumcision is not a physical thing, it's a matter of the heart. This is a huge thing for Paul to say, and not a very popular thing for Paul to say. This is one of the reasons that you read through Acts to continually see Paul going to the synagogues and not long after being violently expelled, if not just from the synagogue, but from the city, and riots breaking out. By the way, they think that one of the reasons that the Jews were expelled from Rome was because there was rioting happening in all these synagogues. There were many synagogues in Rome. It's a large city. There were all these writings happening, and one of our recorders of history, not a Christian recorder, but Josephus, who was one of our best historians of that time, he says that there was writing over the name of Christus, which is very similar to Christus, the name for Jesus in Latin. So we think that there was, I mean in Greek, so we think that there was this um, writing happening over this kind of an issue. So that's why it's a big deal, what Paul is saying here in Romans. That's where this text comes out of. So there was a church meeting one time, and there was a a very wealthy man in the church meeting. And he stood up to share and tell about his Christian faith. And he told everyone that he was a millionaire. And he said... I attribute it all to the rich blessings of God in my life. I remember that turning point in my faith. I had just earned my first dollar and I went to a church meeting. And while I was at the meeting, there was a speaker who was a missionary and he was talking about his work. And I knew that I had a choice. I could either keep that dollar or I could give it all to God's work. It needed to be all or nothing. And so at that moment, I gave my whole dollar to God. And I believe that because of that decision, that God has blessed me, and that's why I'm a rich man today. So he finished, and of course there was an odd silence in the congregation. 
as he took his seat. And when he sat down, there was this little old lady sitting next to him who leaned over and she said to him, I dare you to do it again. <laughs> it's a joke. Okay, it's not true. It's a joke. It's, it's the idea that hypocrisy is something that we all have to deal with, right? So we can talk about giving our dollar to God and how God has just blessed us so much for that, but is that still our attitude? You know, that's the, the idea. You do it again. Go ahead. Give away all your millions. See what happens, right? How does God deal with hypocrisy? This text we read this morning, this is what Paul is bringing out. He's talking to specifically in this church, those who feel like they have some moral high ground because they have been obedient to all of this Old Testament law, which, by the way, takes up a lot of the prophets or most of our scriptures. So he's saying those of you who take pride in being teachers of all that and living that out, do you obey it all? It's essentially what he's asking. So I was thinking about this whole issue of hypocrisy and how God deals with it. And it brought up to me one of my favorite interactions in Scripture. And I'd like to read it to you today. This happens in 2 Samuel. And I'll give you a moment to turn there if you'd like to follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, we're going to begin reading in, in verse 1. Let me just give you a little bit of the story. I'm sure you're familiar with this. What happens is that King David is um, now doing very well. And Israel is doing well under King David's reign. And he is not even going out with the armies anymore because his armies have been, doing, been so successful. So he's home in Jerusalem during the time when the kings normally go out to battle. And he's sitting around and he's in the top of his palace and he sees a woman bathing. Down in her, you know, the palace is up higher and she's down and her name's Bathsheba, and he desires her, and so he sends for her. And he basically um, does what he wants to do as king, and she tells him later that she's become pregnant. Now, her name's Bathsheba. Her husband is away at war. So King David finds out who her husband is, and she calls him back, and she says, he says, you know, his whole plan is basically to have him come home and be with his wife so that he thinks the baby is his. Okay, that's his big plan. It doesn't work because the man is so loyal to King David and to the, his fellow soldiers that he won't even go home to be with his wife because his comrades are out in battle. So when David, King David finds out this isn't going to work, what he does is he sends, him, uh, sends the man with his letter to go back to the commanders. And in the letter is his fate sealed by the king, which basically says, put him out on the front lines and then when the fighting gets really intense, pull everybody back so that he dies. And this happens. And then after that happens, King David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, who, by the way, becomes the uh, mother of the next king, King Solomon. So here is the, the, how God deals with this. God sends his prophet to King David. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat out of his meager fare and drink from his cup, 
and lying in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Now you see the king had, King David was accustomed to this. He had to, he had to be a judge in disputes that came before him all the time. King David was known for being very just in his judgments. And so the, Nathan comes as a prophet and says, let me tell you what's going on. And he tells him this story of the man who has this precious lamb, only one poor man, who cares for it like a child, and a very rich man who has everything. And when the traveler comes, the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and kills it to give to the traveler instead of one of his own. Okay, so what's David's response? Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As surely, or as the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? So King David, um, if you continue to read, he repents. He, he owns up to it. Um, there's still consequences for what David has done. A lot of consequences. But... King David at least has the, the I don't know what, to, what word to even use. I mean, he's, he's humble enough, I suppose, as king to still hear God's word. And that line is a famous line. You are the man. We could make it more applicable and say, you are the person. This is how God deals with hypocrisy. It's how God deals with hypocrisy in the church. It's how God deals with hypocrisy in us. He has these moments when the Holy Spirit will present us with something, maybe in Scripture, maybe somewhere else, and it's like a mirror, and we realize that while we had been judging everybody else around us for being so broken and awful and terrible, it's in us too. We see it in us. Some of my favorite quotes about the church, some I had written in my Bible when I was a kid, I, I probably heard some pastors say them one time. Um, Yes, the church is full of hypocrites. What better place for them to be? I say this all the time when I talk to people. Um, Yeah, I mean, let's just own up to it. Christians are hypocritical. But where else should they be? They should be in the church if you're a hypocrite. It's a sin. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. Right? Everyone, when they take, you know, we have times in our life when we're looking for a new community to join, a new church community, and... Um, If you're looking for the perfect church, then that's a problem. Because as soon as we join it, it's not going to be perfect anymore. The church is like Noah's Ark. The only reason people put up with the stink on the inside is because of the storm on the outside. (laughs) Not true. So, what's Paul trying to do here? Well, Paul, in this text we read, he is dealing with the Jewish insiders and their morally superior attitude. 
He's going to deal with the Gentiles too. In fact, we already, when we looked at chapter 1, we said this was something where the Jewish Christians would have been going, yeah, 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 preach it, Paul, right? And now it flips around. And now he's talking specifically to the Jewish members in there. And he's, he's speaking to these church insiders. And he wants them to see their own hypocrisy and demanding that they obey all of the law when they themselves are unable to do it. This is not how you get justified before God. And so Paul turns it around and he really says what we've heard said in another way, which is what, it's what's inside that counts. So this outward sign that you've been given and the outward practices of food and ceremonial washing and <clears throat> all the other things you might do growing out your sideburns. I mean, there's lots of things that still today Jew, good Jewish practicing people would do to outwardly show their faith. And Paul is turning that back to the inside. And he says, one is a Jew who is one inwardly. One is part of God's people because of something in the heart, not because of something on the outside. True religion, if you will, is a matter of the heart, not a matter of good moral practice. You know, for many Christians today, being a good Christian is thought of as being someone who attends church on Sunday, who spends time reading their Bible, who spends time in prayer, who does good things, not swearing maybe. For some, it involves not drinking, you know, not um, honoring your marriage, giving food to the food bank. I mean, we could go on and on, right? There's this whole culture that has been developed about what it means to be a good Christian. And none of these are bad things. None of the law that Paul had been, that the, the Jews had been given was bad. Jesus said, I didn't come to, to demolish it, but to really fulfill it, right? So it's not that any of these things are bad. It's just that none of those things make you a Christian. It's not a matter of outward practices. It's a matter of the heart. It's deeper. I'm actually, however, I have to say, I am a big fan of the fake it till you make it method of being a Christian. Which means, if, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, I have a hard time loving my enemies. I'm sure none of you do. But I have a very hard time loving my enemies. My heart isn't in it at all. I, and one of the ways I try to do this is to pray for those. When I go through my prayers every day, I try to, I try, if there's anyone who's really bothering me or I'm really upset with, I try to pray for them and I try not to pray God change them, but to pray God bless them. That's hard to do. My heart's not in it. But I'm a big proponent of just faking it until you make it. Because I think that the idea, the practice of doing good things, of doing good works, of trying to live out the law, can help build in us the right heart. The problem becomes when we are trying to do all those things because we think that they're what make us right. It's still a matter of the heart. But we should still do those things. We should still try to read our Bible and to pray. and All those good things. We should be doing those things. <clears throat> So Paul, in this text, he, he does something else that would have been pretty uncomfortable for many of the readers. And he basically points out there's, there's some really good Gentiles 
who are doing a better job of fulfilling the law than some really good Jews. <clears throat> and I would say that's the same for us today. You've ever had someone say, well, aren't there really good people who aren't Christians? So what does that mean? You see, that logic, that argument works if being a Christian is about being morally good. Then you have to say, well, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> There's a lot of really good people who don't, maybe they don't know Jesus, maybe they don't believe in Jesus, and they're doing really good things. So people use that as an argument to say, see, it's not all about Jesus. <laughs> and then I just have to just turn that all back around and say, it's not about doing good things. And Paul is trying to lay out that argument. He's like, who can stand on their own good works? Is there anyone who can? But, but he turns it around and he says, but those of you who want to, just look. There's some people who aren't even Jews and they're doing a better job of it than you are. So what does that mean? It's not just about these external things, Paul wants to say. I would say, by the way, I mean, I would just say that when we look at people who others would say, hey, they're really, they're doing some really good things, things that Jesus taught us to do, and yet they don't know Jesus. To me, that's not evidence that they don't need Jesus. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in people long before they ever know Jesus. I mean, Paul said the same thing in the text we read last week. He said, you just look at creation. No one has an excuse. You can see God's handiworks. I would say the Holy Spirit works in the same way, that the law of God is written on our hearts. There was a whole prophecy about that. About when Jesus came, the law would be written on their hearts and in their minds. And I would say that's true. That God, the Holy Spirit, is working in people's lives long before they ever come to recognize Jesus. And that would be evidence of that for me. So how will we, how will you respond to God's charge? How do you respond if you know that there's hypocrisy in you? What would you do if you were King David and you were called out publicly in your sin? The good news, I think sometimes as we work through Romans, it's hard to hear the good news in what Paul is saying. The good news in what Paul is saying is that it's never too late to repent. It's never too late to say, God, I was wrong. God, I'm sorry. It's never too late to own up to our brokenness. And scripture after scripture after scripture proves to us that God loves the religious outsiders who are willing to say, I'm wrong. I'm broken. I need you. Father, as we come to you, we just ask that you would help us to be a humble people. That you would help us to be willing to own up to our own hypocrisy when it's there. And to make a change. God, we want to be people who are moving more in your direction and less in our own. Thank you, God, that you love us as we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.